Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Hey, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Great to be together. Love to get to share these uh, moments with uh, uh, all the families this morning. Just welcome everyone from our campuses and folks uh, watching online. We're finishing up um, a series called uh, Gracious Resistance, really talking about Daniel and his life and legacy. A lot of people are familiar with Daniel, mainly because of a couple of stories. The Lion's Den, probably the most famous, and then you got the Fiery Furnace with some of his friends and all these things. And um, today, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Daniel is Daniel in places reads like the book of Revelation. And so this morning, I'm supposed to talk about Daniel in the lion's den, which I'm going to. But I want to talk about it in a particular way that talks about this dream in Daniel 7 about these four crazy beasts. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. And speaking of kind of dreams and nightmares, I've had one all week long. Uh, and the nightmare is this, that usually when I'm working on my messages, I try to think about the end and I write it out, type it out pretty clearly so that if all else fails, I look at the clock, it's like noon, I can just finish and everybody knows I'm done. This nightmare has been that I can't get out of this message and it just goes on perpetually, like I just can't stop. So uh, like everything I get to the end, I can't find the end, so I start back over and it just, so I hope that doesn't happen to y'all today. Um, but I wanna talk about this idea of what gets set up in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel is a story not about a lion's den or not about a fiery furnace. Daniel is a story about a stubborn faith. It's about a resolve, a tenacity of personal devotion that, that makes its way um, into a person's life. I think that gives us a model for how we live, how we can live when the culture doesn't um, cooperate or or um, doesn't necessarily uh, align with how we want to live and believe God wants us to live, but rather the exact opposite is true, that where anything goes, really we should just have access to, and that's what we should be able to do. It's a model of resilience. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that Daniel, although he is uh, in the king's court, and it's interesting, it looks as though he's complicit with a lot of these these things that happen, these, these, the rule of some of these kings, and he's a part of those cabinets, and he's really high up and exercises a lot of power. Um, he doesn't get sucked into those power plays. He doesn't get pulled in to this way of life. And I think it gives us a way for us to think about how we um, are to live as exiles, as people who live in a culture in which they don't really belong. I'm specifically talking about those of us who are following Jesus and learn to following him, that, that the way of life under the rule of God's love is distinctly different. It's other than the way our world operates. And what you'll see in Daniel is this tension between God and what we'll call the anti-God. And specifically, um, this, this rule or this governance uh, underneath this, this rule of God or this rule of anti-God. And what you'll begin to see, and I wanna really paint this after because a lot of us have this, this idea that the gospel is really about um, God coming to us and then it's a decision about what, what happens to us after we die. And we've been saying this for a long time around here, trying to help us understand, trying to help me understand, and then leading our church through this, that the gospel isn't so much about what, if, what happens to us when we die, but what happens to us when we live. 
It's about how do we find and learn how to live a life. And what you'll begin to see is the way this is presented for us throughout the scriptures. This is really everywhere when you begin to look at it. It's this sort of idea of God restoring humans to a sense of humanity. It's about God returning us to the way in which he has created us and called us and intends for us to live as his image bearers. That, that's, it's throughout, it's, it's everywhere you look in the scriptures. And so what happens is this parallel gets set up throughout the scriptures, but it's particularly pointed in Daniel and in Daniel chapter seven, where you sort of have God and humans and the anti-God, and then you have these representatives that are beastly, this, this, this system of beasts. So I want us to look at that and explore that um, today. Um, this is particularly important in, in our culture, in our context, because we live in a world that is governed by all sorts of pursuits, power plays, attention grabs, right? Pleasure is at your disposal almost anywhere you want whether you have the means to afford to entertain yourself with money and comforts and whatever it is that you pursue, or you have simply at your fingertips the virtual world, which can give you almost limitless indulgence and pleasure and escape and deviation and perversion, whatever it is that you can imagine you can find, and it's at your fingertips all the time. And the problem or the challenges in our culture there's almost no governing force that suggests that you shouldn't indulge yourself, that you shouldn't do this. There's almost nothing that restrains you. And so what the challenge for us and what I think Daniel really helps us to see is that we have to learn. And it's just gonna be you and me deciding to do this together. We have to learn how to derive life from a God that we trust and we give him the authority to govern our desires and our affections and our pursuits, regardless of what is happening in the world around us. So the question I wanna kind of ask or lead with is what do you do when things don't go the way that you want them to? What do you do when you don't get what you want? What do you do when what you thought should happen didn't happen, whether it's a, something in the, the, the business world that you thought you should have, something in a relational sense that you thought you should have, or maybe something that God, didn't do for you. You thought God should do this and he didn't. Maybe it was a prayer that didn't answer. Maybe it was a diagnosis you received. Something that happened to you. And now you've got to sort of deal with this gap between, hey, I'm probably not going to get what I thought I was going to get. What do you do in those moments? Well, you know what a lot of us do, right? We just take what we can because that's, that's, the, that's the easy thing. If something doesn't work out, you just grab something else. And what does it mean for us to hold fast or to stay in or to develop a sense of resilience, which I think is what Daniel models for us. When I was in college, I remember this became my mantra. It's been sort of my lifelong mantra. And I read this in college. And the reason I remember this from my college days, let me tell you why I remember this, because I wrote it down in my journal. <laughs> Y'all knew that was coming. I wrote it down and it stuck in my brain. And it was a book title that I saw by a guy named Eugene Peterson. And it was a quote from a German atheistic philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. And the, the quote or the phrase is a long obedience in the same direction. So I'm in college and I wrote this down because I'm, there are things that are, in, that are in my grasp that I want. 
And I'm trying to figure out if I don't take these things, I'm never going to get them. And I had sort of a theology that says, God will forgive me so I can do them and then ask for forgiveness and then I'll be good. And I'll get the story to go along with it, right? That's the fun part. But I had to decide, am I gonna take the things that are in my grasp or am I gonna hold fast to something else? A long obedience in the same direction gave me sort of a perspective to understand that, that my faith, my own personal faith was not a means to a good life. That somehow what I was going to believe was not going to be recognized or realized until decades from now. That I wouldn't know until I was like 70 if the way of life that I was gonna live was worth the life that I would make available. That's a risky move, right? Because everything, everything that you don't do now feels like something you're never gonna have later on. You've gotta decide. So the reason I bring this up, because this is really what, what is happening uh, in the book uh, of Daniel. Because when things don't go like we want, we typically end up being apathetic. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. That's what I've kind of titled this last um, installment of this series called Gracious Resistance. It's called uh, Resisting Apathy. Um, Daniel, if you recall, right, this is the book that's recorded for us of this Babylonian captivity. So God's people, Jerusalem, Babylon comes in under King Nebuchadnezzar. He conquers Jerusalem. He humiliates them. He humiliates their culture. He kidnaps uh, some of their uh, top talent, kills a bunch of people. These are bloodbath. Takes some of their top talent and brings them back to Babylon to make them work for him. Uh, he brings them, he gives them their food. He teaches them their language. He teaches them their literature. Remember Daniel resisted the food. This creates sort of the first tension. And he goes on and you, you see all these series of kings and series of dreams and all these things happen. I was thinking about this because we have to try to draw this. Daniel is a really interesting um, book. Uh, Daniel begins sort of chapters one through four. Okay, and you gotta kind of follow me here. This is gonna be a little complicated. Um, and if, if my dream doesn't come true, it will end uh, at some point in time. But chapters one through four, are essentially this sort of tension of the diet. If you remember, if you haven't, you have to go back and watch these. Um, it's the, uh, it's the, the idea that you have the, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. Uh, you also have the crazy dream of the head, the, 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 the big statue with the head of gold, the torso of bronze, and the feet of clay and iron. You have that thing happening. And, it, and this all happens in a very short period of time. And this is all underneath um, the, uh, the ruler, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll just call him Chad for short. <clears throat> and so his name is Nebuchadnezzar. It's Nebuchadnezzar, if you spell it. So Chad, we'll just call him Chad for short. So Chad is the emperor, the ruler of Babylon. And he does, this all happens pretty quickly, these first few. Then it says, we introduced to another king and Jeff did a great job last week. Did y'all enjoy Jeff last week? Wasn't it great? Um, <clears throat> he's not here. Uh, actually, he, we, we let him go after last week. It was done. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I should probably cut that out. Um, so Jeff introduced us to another king uh, named uh, Belshazzar. And so Belshazzar comes into rule. And if you remember last week, um, we'll just call him Shaz. And so Belshazzar comes in, this is chapter five. And if you remember the thing from Adam's family writes on the wall, has this terrible nightmare and Daniel interprets it and Belshazzar is killed that night. 
And then in chapter six, we're introduced to another king. And this guy's name is Darius. And this seems to be another invasion or another overthrow because this is now a Persian king. It's a Mede. And so you have Darius and uh, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And this all happens, and we think it happens in like, oh, just a few years. The problem is if you read Daniel, you'll get to the end of chapter four, you get to five and you read chapter six, it all runs like this. And then chapter seven says, in the first year of King Belshazzar. Well, this is at the end of Belshazzar. So then you have to back up and say, okay, so chapter, uh, we'll do this, we'll make these guys like this. So this is one through four, uh, this is five, this is six. And then chapter seven is this crazy dream and it happens somewhere in there and so does eight. So both of these happen prior to. And then there's a lot of debate, but chapter nine happens perhaps here or perhaps here, but it's definitely before this. So this is chapter nine. The reason this is important is because chapter nine is a prayer. Chapter nine is a recorded prayer by Daniel. You know what he's asking? What's so important is Daniel is in chapter nine and he's pleading to God, probably writing in his journal, he says, God, I have read Jeremiah. This is fascinating. God, uh, Daniel, this guy, Daniel, was reading the very prophecy of the book that you have in your Bible. He was reading Jeremiah. He's studying the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote prior to this. It's interesting. This is like Nebuchadnezzar's golden age. You ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? I studied architecture, man. We studied the pyramids, the hanging gardens. This is all here. This isn't like fantasy land. These are conquests. Babylon conquered Jerusalem. They have one series of rulers after another. And so Jeremiah had written all about this. And one of the things that he said in there, Jeremiah prophesies that somehow this captivity into Babylon is gonna last 70 years. It's gonna last 70 years. So we find Daniel somewhere over here praying to God. More than likely, he is praying to God because the 70 years is almost up, which means what? Daniel has lived his entire life in captivity. Now he's thinking the bronze head is an empire, right? The belly, the bronze belly is an empire. The silver torso is an empire. The clay feet and clay and iron feet are an empire. Like God, you know, <clears throat> 70 years. Like what is, what is this? What do you think he's asking in this prayer? He, he's, he knows that these are all rules and all emperors and all kings and kingdoms that are gonna fall. And he's sort of sitting in this space going, when, how long? God, I saw that you said that 70 years would be captive and then we would be reconciled. You know what he hears from God? Oh, not 70 years, but 70 times seven. What would you do if you're Daniel and you've been through all this and you have the pick of the litter at your fingertips? All of us would understand if Daniel just said, yep, give me it all. I've been here long enough. But he doesn't. This is what's so miraculous about the lion's den. Daniel lives under this rule of God. He has consistently for much of his, for all of his life. And it's interesting what happens. This is worth noting. 
that Daniel has a tremendous amount of influence and a tremendous amount of trust because he's demonstrated this capacity to have wisdom and to be dependable in all these things. And he has trust and he has influence. But what everybody who lives in this system thinks Daniel has is power. And I'll be really clear because this is something that all, especially those of you who are looking to learn how to walk in the way of Jesus and to lead in the way of Jesus and to take positions of responsibility and leaderships in the name of Jesus. It is always about influence and trust and the world will always perceive it as power. And if you're not careful, you will get sucked right into that way of thinking and think that you have something that you weren't given. And we think about influence like our whole posture from, from me, our entire, our goal is we recognize and we try, to, we try to recognize this often. We try to talk about this, that we recognize that anybody who listens to us or trusts us is a privilege that is to be stewarded with tremendous care. It is not a right. Nobody has a right to a platform in this place. We steward trust and we leverage influence for the sake what we believe that God is doing and asking of us, not for anything else. It can very easily get pulled because most everybody pulls you into power just to make you more than you are. Try to use it for things. Oh, you deserve this, you should. And very few things restrain a person from taking what they can. <clears throat> we have to learn how to draw life from God to become the kind of people that he wants us to be. So here's what happens to Daniel. They look at Daniel, all these folks somewhere in here. <clears throat> Daniel's got a lot of influence with the kings. He's trusted. In fact, he's in charge of a whole group of people. And they're like, we want him out of the way. So they try to dig up dirt on him. They can't find any dirt. <laughs> you know, that's not American politics. You can find that everywhere. They couldn't find anything on Daniel. So here's what happens. Daniel 6, chapter, uh, verse 6 and 7. So the administrators and satraps went to, uh, as a group to the king and they, they just kissed up to him. King Darius, may you live forever. You're the man, you're beautiful, your hair is awesome, right? That's what they told him. Then verse seven, the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors, all agreed. We've all thought about this, we've come together. We all agree that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days except you should be thrown into the lion's den. This sounds flannel board and kids Sunday school, this is very violent and horrifying. This is not the United States of America where you have due process. You cross the ruler in Babylon and you die. It's, it's just the way it was. So he makes this edict. They're all like, you're the man. He makes this edict. And by that, in those days, whatever edict was given had to be followed. There was, there was no appeal. Right? It just had to be followed. So it's really, you have to know this. <clears throat> so here's what Daniel does. At this point in his life, after he's asked God, how long? And God says, longer than you're gonna live. It's gonna be longer than you're gonna live. Before we look at what Daniel did, I wanna ask you a question. How many of us would be content to give our whole lives for things that we'll never experience? for a vision for generations to build and to do things that are gonna benefit our children's children and maybe their children behind them. We've, we've, we've had this in our DNA for a long time as a church. 
But I think it's part of what gets overlooked in our culture. And it is one of the unique opportunities for the church is that we have a generational responsibility that is available to us. At this point in my personal tenure, right, long obedience in the same direction, it has served me well. I've been here 23 years just trying to do just one thing and do it as the little things just faithfully in front of me as they come. That's what I've tried to do. And now I'm here, I'm still very young, by the way, but I'm 52 years old. And now what I'm starting to look for is how is it What's the church gonna be like 25, 35, 40 years from now? I see these, these kids, we just, you know, down here. And I'm like, what are, what, when they step into these positions, what kind of handles are they gonna have to be able to do what God is asking of them in that generation, not just try to do what we've always done and preserve what we did way back in 2023. Like that means we have to let go of stuff. We have to, we have to entrust. All these things have to happen. But this is what Daniel, Daniel's here Right, and he's at this point, and he knows that whatever is gonna happen, he's not going to see. And now they've made a plan to get rid of him. And here's what Daniel says. Chapter uh, six, verse 10. Now Daniel learned, he learned this decree had been published, so he knew it. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God. What? Just as he has always done. You know why this is so important? Because Daniel didn't just do something to prove a point or do something because he was told he couldn't do it. It was so funny. One of the things that politics reveals, especially among Christians, is when the government tells us we can't do something, we're like, oh, we're gonna do it, even though we've never done it before. It's like, no, no, you don't get to do that. You only get to do the things in defiance of things that you have already been doing all along. It's a personal devotion. And Daniel's just doing what he's always done. Let's get them thrown in the lion's den. That's where the miracle happens and you get all the other stuff. But here's what I want for us to understand. A lot of us lose heart when we don't get what we want. A lot of us lose heart when we realize that something, we're not gonna keep doing what we've done because it hasn't worked is what we will resolve. And what happens is when things, when we start to feel that things don't matter, there's a sense of apathy or indifference. Apathy, apathy doesn't just mean you're not gonna do anything. It just means that you no longer care about the things that perhaps you ought to care about or could care about. And those are usually get replaced with other things. It's a sense of futility. And futility can certainly be marked by indifference. I just don't care. It doesn't matter. Why should I bother anyway? And some of you, you've experienced that. Some of you may be experiencing that today. It's just indifference. But futility also can manifest itself in indulgence. It's like, well, I ain't getting that, so I might as well get what I can while I can. And so there's nothing restrains you. Think about this. When you begin to move, what do you become? What do you become? personal devotion is about doing what is in front of you faithfully, faithfully. Everything that is in front of you faithfully. This is what I think as, as followers of Jesus, we have to be marked by a way in which we draw, derive life from God. It's interesting. I was reading, um, I've been reading a lot of Tish Harrison Warren. She's written some great books and, um, uh, she was, I was listening to her on an interview this week and she was talking about these sort of countercultural practices. A lot of times, how a lot of times personal devotion are sort of countercultural. And she was particularly talking about the Sabbath. Like to take a day off, 
to, to, to not produce something or to engage in commerce or to just simply pull back from the world to simply rest is, is not rewarded in a culture of hustle, right? We try to cram everything in and work so hard. And what she remarks is this. She says, this is what she says. She says, imagine, right, if we learn how to do these kind of practices in a way, we became a counter-cultural community of well-rested people. <laughs> I thought that's such a great idea, right? What if when everybody else is exhausted and like, oh my gosh, I'm just doing the grind. We're like, oh no, I got purpose, man. It's Monday, I got purpose. Like, you know how weird people think that you are? What if we were a countercultural community of like well-rested people? And I began to think about this, right? What if we became a countercultural community of hopeful people, of people who aren't prone to cynicism or apathy? People who the fact that the president or your, your, your party or whatever law or whatever, that you, you, whatever's happening, you cannot be pulled into apathy or cynicism because there's a hope in you. And that hope doesn't just make you optimistic. That hope drives deep enough that makes you care. That's the difference. Personal devotion does something more than just make us moral. Hope does something more than make us optimistic. It causes us to move outward towards others. One of the things we've seen, Daniel has served people consistently people he vehemently disagreed with in ways in which he could have been accused of being complicit to these rules. So that's the end of part one of the message, okay? I told you this is like actually really important. So here's part two. <clears throat> what intrigued me was if he knew all this, what happened right here, this dream in Daniel 7? And what I began to notice as I read, this is, this is so funny because I'm reading all these um, books and, and trying to you know, research and what I kept seeing over and over again is that, and this is just said like it's a matter of fact. They said, one of the things <clears throat> is to remember is that Daniel 7, this dream in the middle of this book, is a clear demonstration of the fulfillment of God's kingdom and this rule of the Messiah. It's crystal clear. So I said, okay, let me look at this dream. Y'all look at this dream? Here we go, Daniel chapter seven. Daniel's here, right? He's been through the fiery furnace, Things are getting a little, you know, a little heated, no pun intended. Fiery furnace, a little heated. And he has this bizarro dream. Here's his dream. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, I had a dream, visions that passed through his mind while he's lying in bed. So he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great seas. And this was a vision of, of chaos, this churning up of just absolute chaos. And out of this chaos, four great beasts, different from the earth, all came up out of the chaos. Remember, this is a clear, clear presentation of God's kingdom and the rule of the Messiah. Okay, you with me? The first beast was a lion, had wings like an eagle. And I watched it till its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground. It stood on two feet like a human being. And there was a second beast, it was like a bear, raised him on one side, he had three ribs in his mouth. So he's like picking his teeth with somebody's ribs. Then there's the third beast. And there was a, this beast was like a leopard and on its back he had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads. He was given the authority to rule. This is crystal clear, isn't it? You thought my dream of this message never ending was bad. This is, this is insane. So then there's a fourth beast. And after that, in my vision, <clears throat> at night I looked and there was before me a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. And he can't even describe it. So he just says, it has like large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and it trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts because it had 10 horns. You know what Daniel does next? This is what it says. 
while I was thinking about the horns. <laughs> I'm like, who does? Like, Let me think about those 10 horns. There one comes up. There's three of them that were uprooted. And then there's this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. There you go. There's the gospel right there. We good? Perfect. Next week, we're, I'm just kidding. I got a few minutes left. <clears throat> so Daniel keeps looking. Look what he sees. It's be on the screen. Chapter seven, verse nine. As I looked, thrones were set in place. Now think about the tension of God and the anti-God. Thrones are set in place. And the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God, the Ancient of Days took his seat and his clothing was as white as snow and his hair was wool and it was white like uh, wool. And his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. So there's this God who comes and he sits on his throne and he's sort of in this mobile Godmobile with wheels of fire. And then he goes on and he says that out of this was flowing a river, a, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court was seated and the book was opened. It's time, right? This is a picture of power and might and glory that causes you to stop and cower. This is what Daniel's seeing. <clears throat> we skip on down and we read this. Verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. There's a throne, these thrones, and on the one throne is the Ancient of Days, and then there is one who is like, and the literal, the literal word is bar adam, literally son of man. It is human. There is one, there is one human who is ascending or who is coming with the clouds of heaven. Look where he was coming. He was coming, um, uh, he approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all the nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. If you were here at Christmas time, do you remember this from Revelation that every tribe and tongue and nation, do you know what the tension was? It was, it was Jesus or the lamb that was slain and it was the anti-Christ. It was one system versus another. This is all setting this up. This is all about this rule and what Daniel is seeing. <clears throat> His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then it just says that Daniel was troubled by this dream. You think? This beast is destroying everything in its path, including the holy ones. And out of these holy ones emerged this humanity to like one coming on a cloud to ascend to this place where God's rule is. So Daniel asks for interpretation. He gets it. It basically gets worse before it gets better. He says, yep, they're coming. They're gonna kill everybody. And Daniel chapter uh, seven, verse 21, if you read down, it says this, as I watched this horn, remember the horn that had the eyes of a human that spoke boastfully, this horn was waging war against the holy people and he was defeating them until until the Ancient of Days came 
and opened the book and said, now it's time. And pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And at the time when they did what? When something was made available to them. The time they possessed the kingdom. So it's really important to pay attention to this particular part because it says, everything was getting defeated and destroyed until the Ancient of Days took his throne. And at that point in time, he says, something happened to humanity that allowed, allowed us to take hold of something, namely the kingdom, this rule. So it's really important for us to think about this. He goes on, verse 26, the court will sit. So this will happen. Everybody's gonna sit down, all rise kind of thing, sit down. But the court will sit and with his power, and his, sorry, and his power, the power of the beast will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to who? I didn't understand you. To God's holy people. <clears throat> I'm not making this up. All of this rule and reign will now be handed over to humanity in the way God has intended humanity to be. And then he goes on and he says this. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. We will live under the authority of God's beautiful rule of his love. That's the picture. So <clears throat> what does this have to do with anything? All right, you gotta go to work tomorrow. We're gonna do it. So, hey, we talked about a super beast, man, with this big horn and right, what kind of wacky church do you go to? This idea of this son of man coming on a cloud, ascending to this throne. I've read the gospels so many times. So many times. Do you know what Jesus referred to himself as? Like most people refer to him as Jesus the Christ, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, his position, his, and Jesus always received it. He never, he never dismissed it. He always received that title, but he never referred to himself as that. You know what he called himself? You see him consistently through all the gospels saying things like this. The son of man did not come to be served but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The son of man has been given the authority to forgive sins. The son of man, right, will destroy the temple and where one stone will not remain on top of another. The son of man will go into the belly and will return in three days. The son of man, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man, all throughout, this is what Jesus called himself. Do you know what every Jewish person would have known when he called himself that? That he was talking about something in this realm. So now, <clears throat> listen, there's the leopard and the bear and the lion and all this has, it's got Greece and Persia and all this. And people have tried for years, right? For years to figure out when, when is this gonna end? When is Jesus coming back? When are these end of days? And I think basically what he said here, it's gonna be 490 years. I don't think it was a literal clock to count 490 years and then figure out which president it is that's the Antichrist. I think 400 or Putin or whoever you think it might be. I think it's this endless cycle of rule. It's this endless cycle of rule. And what it has to do with us is what Jesus came to do for us, which is to forgive your sin, make no mistake about it. It is to secure your sort of eternity and the life that he's come to give you. It is those things. 
but it's more. He's come to return you to the kind of human that he's created you to be. I want to consider this, right? What happens to us, to you, to me? Not just systems. It happens in systems. It's easy to point out in systems. It's easy to look at any government, no matter how good it is, and point out how they act beastly each other. I want to talk about you and me. What happens to you when you sit in traffic? Do you become more gracious and accommodating of others? Or does a little beast pop up? Have you ever punched your dashboard or a windshield or flick somebody off that you don't even know who they are? No, nobody's gonna raise their hand. You're like, no, I've never done that. You have. <laughs> Some of you flicked me off because I drive terrible. I get it. <laughs> right, have you ever punched something because you were, because something inside of you was so discombobulated? You just, what, what happens to us when we don't get what we want? How does it erupt in violence? You ever slammed your hand on a desk in a meeting or at home? Where does this come from? It's, it's this rule. It's the trajectory of life apart from God, of anti-God. It is the trajectory. Think about our sexuality, right? Do we act more chaste and dignified if just given ourselves or do we become like really debased and like perverse and animalistic? Like which, which would des describe the sexual culture that we have been bred in, no pun intended, for the last two generations? Does it feel more like human or does it feel more animal? Like we can't control ourselves because that's just what we are, sexual beings. No, that's, that's beastly. People who live under the rule, Jesus says, or, or the scriptures teach us, right? That we are to possess our bodies in holiness and honor so as not to cause harm to another person. So it's, these, it's this personal devotion not to be a moral person. It's this personal devotion to remain human. So how? What did Jesus do that makes this possible? Right, so the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. The Son of Man, all these language. <clears throat> so Jesus is about to be crucified. And he goes before Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas uh, has to give, he's basically, this is like, this is literally the belly of the beast. Jesus is in the belly of the beast. He's about to deal with the Jewish temple system. He's about to deal with Rome and Pilate and all the stuff. And he's standing before Caiaphas. Caiaphas is sort of like the, the big cheese. Like he gets to decide, is this charge worth going over to Rome to seal his death? And so he's standing before Caiaphas. And if you know about what Jesus would say, Jesus would say things like this. When he stood before Pilate and Pilate's like, are you the king of the Jews or not? And this is what Jesus says to him. Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a king. And, but if I were of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight and we'd win because I've got like, I can kill you all, right? That's what he says. I could call down legions of angels and they would annihilate all of you. And I can guarantee you that's what I would have done. So Jesus is standing before Caiaphas. And this is what Caiaphas says. This is in Matthew chapter 26. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath, the living God, tell us, and look at the language, if you are, the Christ, the Messiah, if you were this title, the Son of God. And Jesus is like, yep, if you say that, that's your, you, you said that, not me. And then Jesus replies, but I also 
say to you, but I say to all of you, from now on, what does he say? You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One on the coming of the clouds in or of heaven. You will see this human moving to the ancient of days and at that point in time, guess what we get? We get to possess all that God had intended for us from the very beginning. I mean, let's read it again, back up to to verse um, 27. Then the sovereignty and the power and the greatness, right? When 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 the son of man ascends to where the ancient of days is, then the sovereign power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the rulers will worship and obey him. The thing that Jesus did for us, the thing that Jesus did for us is to forgive us of our sin, right? He did for us what we could not do for ourselves in forgiving our sins. But he became for us what we could not become for ourselves, but would only be found in him to return to the kind of human that God has intended us and calls us to be. That we learn to live as new humans in as a new humanity in a new rule. That's, that's the charge, right? That's Daniel 7. How killer is that? Because here's why. What I think Jesus knew is in the moment, because he stood before them and he, what happened to him? Right, he was crucified. Like he stood in the belly of his, he could have killed them all, but he took everything they had. Do you know why? You know, I think so important about this for us to get. This is why your faithfulness, your long obedience in the same direction matters. Because Jesus knew that in the moment I become like the beast. Or in the moment I act in the way of the beast, I bear the image of the beast. And you know this is true. The moment you begin to act in these ways is the moment you begin to bear the image of someone other than who you've been created to be. And all of us know this. You've had moments where you lost your mind and the enemy tries to tell you, oh, that's just who you are. And you know inside of you, all the people around you love you know that's not who you are. There's somebody else there. You just can't seem to find them. And it's not because you swear or promise. It's in all the hundred thousand little acts of faith that you do and you incline yourself to refuse to act in the way of the beast and thereby bear the image of the beast. And you begin to act in the way of the son of man and you become like the human that you have been intended to bearing the image of God that you were created to bear. That's why your personal devotion matters. Every time, all the big stuff is fine, but it's in your house, in your room, with your thoughts. When you contend in those moments and you refuse to give into anti-God ways and therein plant seeds of the beast and you live in this way, you become more like the one for whose image you've been created to bear. This is the beauty of obedience. It's why it all matters. This is why it matters tomorrow. Because there are people that you will see. You can make them feel more human and alive or you can kill them slowly 
with indifference and apathy, with words, right? We, all, we know this. Sorry, this is like the message that's never gonna end. I'm ending. <clears throat> the thing that Daniel modeled, and I think pointed us to Jesus, is he models how you work in the belly of the beast and you maintain allegiance to the lamb. I heard a guy say this. He said, you can follow the beast into the way of Babylon or you can follow a slain lamb into the way of promise. And that happens with almost every choice that we make. And here's the, here's the challenge, right? There's almost nothing in your normal world that's going to prevent you or prohibit you from taking what you want. Somehow, we have to learn to derive life from him. And this is why personal devotion matters. Personal devotion isn't just disciplines and practices. It is those. It is those. You should get on your knees and pray. You should, I'm gonna say keep a journal or whatever. You know what I'm saying. You should, we're gonna talk about this in the next series. Not that you should journal. You won't come back, but other things. <clears throat> but personal devotion is your willingness to give allegiance to Jesus in every matter pertaining to what it means to be human in this world. I don't care about your piety. It's how do you live this out in the world in which you live with all of the pressures and pulls and things that are available to you. To live in the way of Jesus so that we bear the image of the one named Jesus. That we've been created and called, right, to do. That's Daniel 7. How's that? Feeling good? Okay, <laughs> thank you. Jesus not only came, right, to return you, to bear his image, but also to participate in the rule in which he's given humanity. It's both. Father, would you help us? I know there are men and women, families here in this room and all of our gathered rooms and watching online. And they've received terrible news, whether it's health or some kind of job thing or something in their family. God, there are people who have opportunities in front of them that they could just take whatever they want when they want it. Got to ask for discernment and wisdom so that the things that we might not receive in our lifetime, I wouldn't prohibit us from bearing your image in the meantime, right? That you would, we'd, something would happen now. Father, give us courage. Give us the kind of friendships and community that we need to share and to bear this together. Um, Father, we will become a hopeful people, a counterculture community of hopeful people who resist optimism or who resist pessimism and apathy and cynicism but aren't just optimistic, but we care deeply for the world. So Father, teach us. Thank you for the life of Daniel. And may we kind of represent or bear the legacy that he leaves in the way that we live. 
We ask all these things in your son Jesus, who is our king. Amen.